Party people, welcome back to MMA, BJJ, and Life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco, here with an all-star cast uh, tonight. Uh, definitely, I would say, uh, the most star power that we've ever had on this podcast. I LeBron know. James! <laughs> <laughs> so that is... Finally! Uh, to, to, to your left, uh, for when we're on YouTube, is uh, Dr. Will Wu, uh, professor of motor control and learning from Long Beach State. What's up, Holmes? How you doing? How you doing? I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. Pretty stoked. It's not LeBron James. It's cl- very close. Though. It's it's very close. Very uh, close. In, in MMA media, he's he's close to a LeBron. But I want you guys to know that over to your right, sitting next to my co-host, Nick Cazono. Nick, how are you, brother? Hello, hello. Is What's we good? I'm good, okay. I'm good. Heavy metal bass playing, Nick Cazono. And just to his uh, right is none other than Tristan Critchfield of Sherdog.com, Sherdog.com, the editor, who is a big Big Chicago Bulls and Jordan fan. What's up, brother? What is up? I think the last time I was on one of your shows, I just yelled into a speakerphone. Now we're doing Zoom. So yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah we are. We 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 have definitely uh, made progress. Uh, but I'm very happy that uh, Tristan is still playing basketball because we are going to, at the end of this, try to get your thoughts on NBA free agency, uh, the trade between uh, Washington and. Um, and the Houston Rockets, uh, what the hell is uh, is uh, James doing down there? James Harden, uh, the new look Clippers. Uh, why the hell Jeremy Grant left <laughs> left Denver and went to Detroit? So we've got we've got some meat on the bone with the NBA too, right? Absolutely. You didn't mention your Knicks, or did you? Abandon- oh, oh, the Knicks were conspicuously quiet. And didn't spend 132 million dollars over two years on Russ, Russell Westbrook, so I'm very happy with the Knicks' new front office right now. Okay. And they didn't sign six power forwards. <laughs> no, six guys have played the same position. Is there anybody here that can handle the ball? Uh, so yeah, I'm very happy that the, at the Knicks, uh, uh, at the at the Knicks being very quiet and not doing anything stupid that was going to make me cringe. So, uh, but anyway, uh, welcome back to MMA BJJ in life. It's, uh, it was a big, uh, weekend in the BJJ community, uh, and maybe in Albuquerque MMA to some extent, and we're going to have to hit up Tristan on kind of what is the state of the union in Albuquerque. But, uh, as, as reported, uh, by Tristan himself, um, Rafael Barata de Freitas, a professor from our beloved academy, uh, Gracie Baja, former competitor on Tough 18, and uh, I would say not only a prominent jiu-jitsu instructor in Albuquerque, but really uh, in the Gracie Baja universe, he's pretty high up. Uh, so November 7th, uh, basically he was jailed and charged with criminal sexual penetration stemming from a November 7th incident after a client captured the alleged incident on a security camera in her living room. Tristan, have you learned anything new about this, or or can you speak to this of what you've learned in over the past twenty four hours? Um, I it's it's been kind of quiet out here since since that uh, report came out over the weekend. So we're kind of on the on the status quo, you know, with the, the details that came out in the Albuquerque Journal report, and which you know, if you give it a read, are, are disturbing enough as it is. I know that they didn't get a get a comment from the from the dojo, you know, and then they had the, the kind of weird statement from Jackson Wink, but I haven't I haven't seen anything since then. I haven't necessarily seen anything from I haven't I haven't looked 
really hard, but I haven't seen anything from Jackson Wing fighters saying much. It's, it seems like it's a little bit just kind of quiet for now. And for the for the benefit of the audience, um, what we talked about, they put out a statement, and if I'm, I, I actually would need to go to the Albuquerque Journal, but I'm going to try to paraphrase. He doesn't work here, as far as uh, Rafael De Freitas doesn't work here and never worked here. Is that is that a fair quote? That's it's close, close enough. enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, how? Oh, Nick's computer froze, so Nick is probably going to depart and restart. So go for it, Nick. Um, so, um, why would they say that he's never worked there when he was prominently featured as their grappling coach on his webpage? I, I actually, I don't know if this is defending Jackson Wink, but I could see them doing a, something where he had a lot of association and involvement with the team over the years, dating back, you know, I don't actually, can't remember the first time, but for a long time. Ten years, because I was in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. So they could put him on their site to bolster the, the credentials of the site without him technically being an employee of Jackson Wink, and I think that could actually be an honest statement in that regard, regardless of the optics of it. It doesn't look good that he's on the website and then he's gone, but it, it's possible that he very, very much was not an employee, but he but was heavily associated and heavily involved with with the team, you know, and he probably got paid maybe by the fighters themselves rather than any type of salary from Jackson Wink is my best guess there. So we are we are really grasp we're really working the margins here because uh, I did have a friend in MMA media that told me to look at his uh, Instagram page and I looked at it and it was Holly Holmes' latest fight. He was photographed in the cage as part of as part of the uh, coaching team. Uh, staff. So I would say we're really skimming the margins here to say that he wasn't employed by the academy, but he was part of their team, obviously. Yes, was, and, and you know, very recently, and and it wasn't you know hidden or you know kind of minimized. It was definitely a big part of even even pictures before that on his Instagram. You see him with whether it's at his his. Jim or elsewhere with with Holly and and Michelle Watterson kind of comes up prominently in more recent photos. I didn't see a lot of other big name fighters, but but Holly Holm and Michelle Watterson were the two that seemed to pop up in in more recent posts. Absolutely, Nick. Do you have anything that you'd like to ask about this? Or excuse me, not Nick. Will on here, but I'll yeah. ask. Um, and so it's more than just there's an association between that academy. Jackson Wink in the Gracie Baja Albuquerque Academy, right? Because it's more than just Barata that's been contributing to coaching their fighters, correct, Tristan? I think yeah, I think over the years they've had they've had different different fighters. I don't I don't know, I'm not well versed in all the associations. Mm. I mean dating back for years and years, different different fighters would be at Gracie Baja and, and would be yeah. there and taking, you know, part of their day to go yeah. over there. As well, as well as having you know someone like Rafael coming to Jackson Wink, so it was kind of it was kind of both ways in that regard. I mean, there's uh, you, if you dig deep, you can find photos of probably anyone from John Jones to Carlos Condit. Uh, I remember actually Diego Brandal. I remember doing yeah. I remember doing an interview with Cub Swanson back in the day outside of that facility, just because that's where we could track him down that particular day for a video interview. So I mean, a lot of a lot of different people have have gone through there. Mm. 
Yeah. Is it be- is it because uh, do they have a specific ju- jujitsu coach in Jackson Wing, or mm-hmm. is that like what's like what's how does that association come about? It, it seems it seems to, to be kind of fluid at times. I mean, because you know Greg Jackson has his his guy jujitsu his brand that he's he's developed, but mm-hmm. you know fighters themselves can add, and this this is true of any camp or any you know any fighter or any gym that, that, that they'll kind of pick and choose their coaches and find separate coaching outside of the main the main base camp when they're when they're able to. So I don't know that that Rafael was a was a primary coach for the gym, but a lot of fighters may have picked him as a coach, and you know then he's brought into the corner in the camp in, in that regard. So you know then you have a guy like I guess Harrison Ledger is more of a judo coach. I'm not, I can't speak on that for sure. DJ is that. I I heard that he's not there anymore. Uh, a call I got the other day, but I don't know. Maybe he still is there. Uh, but I I heard that, so that I would call that more like a rumor. But I think the association goes back to the reason I say 2010 is Diego Brandao when he won uh, tough, and he would he was going over and grappling at Gracie Baja, and I think he helped to kind of cement those two academies together by bring you know Tusa came over ended up being John Jones's coach and uh because at that point John Jones was a white belt uh there so I think I think Diego Brandao was probably a big part of making Gracie Baja and Jackson Wing come together I believe so I don't know if that rings true with you or if that rings a bell no I'll take your word for it on that. One. I, don't, <laughs> I don't know the, the origin of the, of the relationship. I honestly, I honestly don't. I just know that I've seen him pop up here and there over the years. Um, haven't, you, haven't really dealt with him a lot. In, I mean, he was, you know, just your basic cordial introductions or if I saw him at the gym, but I didn't have a lot of personal act, re- interaction with him over the years to really speak on, on his character, you know, very much at all. I mean, the way, the way I look at it, uh, I've, I've, He's been to our academy. I've grappled with him. Will has probably grappled with him over at Gracie Baja in Irvine. You don't know a person's character. You only know what they're showing you in public. I know what I saw in Clovis when we bumped into him, when I saw him in Albuquerque a few times. I saw him coaching fighters. Um, and then, of course, like I said, I interacted with him in California a couple of times, uh, grappled with him. But that doesn't mean that you know somebody, and I wouldn't expect Mike Winklejohn to know. So I think it's it's very it would have been very fair to just say yes, he's worked here, he's been part of the staff here. No, we didn't know he was doing these things. I think that that's very fair. Why they would try to concoct, why they would try to stretch the bounds of credulity by saying he wasn't a paid employee, even though he's on our website as the grappling coach, you know, is is kind of stupid to me. But it's. I think it's pretty typical of the kind of stuff that, uh, the kind of things that Winkle John does. He kind of works in the margins. But uh, did you get any pushback from the academy for writing that story? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it went all over the major sites, so it's not like I was pushing the envelope with with running that. All the you know a lot of the top sites ran it around the same time, so it was it was pretty significant news. Have you gotten pushback? Well, I mean, it was written by the Albuquerque General first, so if someone was likely to get the pushback, it might be them. But mm-hmm. what are you what are you gonna do? There's police records and and camera footage. It's not something that's speculatory. You know, there's a police report out there. Nick, do you have anything? I don't wanna like just 
Dominic, yeah, I think, think uh, a lot of the things have already been touched upon with it and everything. Yeah, you have better insight on uh, the Jackson Wing Academy, both Tristan and yourself, DJ. So, yeah. I'll ask you, Tristan, what is the state of, of MMA in Albuquerque today? Compared to let's say four or five years ago when when we met, oh, we met. We, we, oh, correct you. I think we met a lot longer than four or five years ago. Yeah, you're but, probably right. <laughs> I think it was like 2013 or something. You're right. Seven years. It, ago. I want to say it was like a Jackson's MMA series years before. Yes, maybe. yes, 2010. Know, it was a decade I ago. I don't know which one. Yep, it was. It was a decade ago. Which actually is a good, kind of a good lead into your question because at a Jackson, Jackson's MMA series kind of were one of, good, one of a good showcase of the local MMA scene in Albuquerque at the time, which pre-COVID, you know, COVID is probably going to squeeze off all of regional MMA for a while anyway, but that's another topic. Mm-hmm. At the time though, you know, Ricky Cottonsteady would put on a, a good show and you could go back and look through those cards and see kind of like a little mini who's who of who's come coming through and ended up on big shows or on reality shows like tough or, you know, good quality regional shows. And I don't know, I think now with, with the state of it, how it is from even, you know, a decade ago at the old, the old Jackson, Jackson's in the May turn Jackson Wink location on uh, San Mateo coma is that you don't have, that that stock pile of local talent like there i mean and 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 there's and there's you know there's occasional people coming in there's you know the aaron pico um clarissa shields is now training here i think because of the friendship with john jones and and the high home influence but it's but you don't have those those carlos condits holly holmes john dodson's um you know, just those people, like, who's the next, you know, Ray Borg, who's the next Albuquerque or Diego Sanchez, who are the, who are the next, like, local people that kind of put put Albuquerque on the map, so they're going to be more, when, when John Jones kind of runs out, which is, when he runs his course, which is still, you know, a ways away, and when Holly, you know, kind of ends, and then a lot of these upper-tier stars that are, that are in their 30s, mid to late 30s now, there doesn't seem to be that local influx of talent unless you know something changes it's, it's more about who you can recruit and who you can attract and it's not that you not can import well. it's importing as well. i'll give you i'll give you a, a snapshot of this was about six years ago when uh, dave mandel used to work at sure dog and we were there he came into town and we do a gym trip and do a bunch of video interviews and he did this and you can probably still find it on the on the website he caught this like ultimate frisbee game at this local park and on the, on the field, you've got like Alistair Overeem, Tim Kennedy, Donald Cerrone, and just all these different guys that are no longer there. And it was just a little kind of a, a cross section of the talent that was, that was running through that gym, you know, and, and just kind of an oddball photo gallery to run on the side at the same time. And it's, it's definitely a lot different. There's guys, you know, there's, there's different people. There's, there's, there's a lot of Bellator, you know, prospects on, it seemed like they're sometimes I'm watching a show and then they say a Jackson Wink Association. I'm like, oh, oh, wow. And I'm not in the gym, like in the, in the my duties have kind of changed, but at the same time, used to be pretty well aware of all the people. So I think, you know, it's those are the main things that have changed to me. You know, the local talent seems to have been a little in decline, and maybe you know, we'll see somebody like a high school state wrestling champion that kind of re reinvigorates that and then and then the other thing that we don't see quite as much is that high level of 
transfer talent, if you will. And, you know, that we used to have with the George St. Pierre's all the way to the Alistair Overeems and so on. And I, ironically, it was, that was almost like the beginning because Diego Sanchez was not omnipresent in the gym at the time when they went in and fielded a call from St. Pierre to come down there and train. And that really pissed off Diego, which is why he moved to San Diego. But if you were Andre Arlovsky uh, and you're there and you don't want Travis Brown coming in there necessarily, you don't want uh, then Alistair, you know, then Travis Brown beats Alistair Overeem. And next thing you know, Alistair Overeem's training at Jackson's. You know, that's not a thing that you want. Uh, you know, you don't want people that you're going to be competing with for a title. And they just kept bringing some, you know, you're in a weight class. I mean, famously, the most famous, of course, is Rashad. You know, Rashad did not want John Jones at that gym because he, you know, was going to make another run at the title, you know, and and they said, oh, no, John, you know, he's, we're going to, he'll help us for Anderson Silva. Next thing you know, he comes in, takes over the, you know, and says, oh, yeah, I'd fight Rashad and just tore the gym apart. Yeah, do you know, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Do you know how they manage that situation that DJ's talking about where I'd imagine as an academy owner, as coaches, you want to maximize your talent. But at some point, like DJ says, you got to be a little bit strategic about the weight classes. You don't want two people in the same weight classes or in the weight class at training the same place and could potentially have a title match. So do you know like strategically or was there actually strategy associated with how they were recruiting fighters or what they were, what they were thinking about in terms of their approach to all that? Well, back early in the earlier days when it was easier to avoid those, I think they just thought they could get by without the people going head to head, but it was, you would still ruffle some feathers, even with like, you know, a George St. Pierre is a part-time visitor that, that upset Diego Sanchez, you know, because they were both fighting at welterweight at the time. Um, the The first time that I really covered it and did interviews extensively was the Rashad John Jones thing, and it was really it was really touchy for 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 Greg Jackson at the time. And I don't know, I mean, I never had him on the record as saying, you know, this is, you know, I think they looked at the situation with that, and they they saw that that Jones was going to be the talent that was going to be more prevalent over the years. And they made their choice, you know, and then Rashad kind of, he was, he was, he burned bridges there to where some of the guys won't be, you know, as blunt as Rashad was. So I think that burned some bridges with Greg. Greg, usually his personality is like, he wants to be everybody's friend, even if, you know, he doesn't want to be the bad guy. So he hated that, that whole thing. I remember specifically, I worked at the newspaper at the time and they ran just kind of on a, like a little subhead, like a little blurb with a quote, a really like damning quote from Rashad. I don't remember exactly. It had nothing to do with me other than it was MMA and I was kind of covering MMA beat. I get a call from Craig Jackson in the morning, like, because I was just attached to it. So I know that's just kind of a, a look at how sensitive it was. Um, they addressed it a little more and I wrote like a long feature about it when Carlos Condit fought George St. Pierre, at least Greg Jackson addressed that one specifically that he was not in the building for that. And they split up the team as far as having Wink. And uh, I think Chris Luttrell back then was, was in the corner of Carlos. And then St. Pierre had his usual tri-star guys. And that one was a very specifically planned out one because they felt 
you know, some of the backlash from the Rashad John Jones. And then I don't know, just down the road, like when it comes down to Arlowski, Alistair Overeem, and some of those other ones, over time, it just, it seemed like there wasn't necessarily a policy. And then you want to go to, I guess what you, what I would say is the low point is, you know, Donald Cerrone and Mike Perry. Mike Perry. You just have Winkle John outright saying, well, Cowboy doesn't pay us. And then Cowboy's on Joe Rogan's calling it the puppy mill. And then Winkle John has this, this weird Instagram video that he takes down eventually, but it like just calling him a cancer. And that was, at that point, I just think there's no, it's just like come what may and whatever's the best. And I don't have like an actual on record quote of that, but if you look at the timeline, it seems like over time it just kind of became, you know, a, a little more of, of whatever works whatever works best or let the let the chips fall where they may. Oh, so you're just kind of ad libbing I just as, I, it, as it went along. I just want to throw something in there because we gotta get a little bit of NBA in before we get Chris uh, Tristan out of here. But uh, one of the things that was documented on record, see, Larry Pepe did not have a big outlet or a big show when he did his podcast. It was a much smaller than something like Sure Dog, which was gargantuan. But he interviewed Greg Jackson, and he asked him directly, did you say that John Jones was the future of the sport, and therefore you, um, therefore you wanted to bring him in secretly? And he said, no, I didn't say that. The problem happened for Greg is that the next week his guest was Chris Luttrell, who Greg said it to. <laughs> and Greg, you know, Chris is a police, he was a police officer, and he's like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie for you. I mean, he said that. Yes, he said that. So they lied to Rashad about the reasons that they were bringing in John, which was coached as, oh, he could help us if we have to fight Anderson Silva at middleweight. And yet, uh, actually, they brought him in because they thought he was the future of the sport, which clearly he was and is. So maybe not I'm is, gonna, but definitely was. Before we close, I'm going to make one, you know, it's mostly like kind of like we've been dumping on the gym. But in their defense, when you're not funded by a, by a multimillionaire, a billionaire, like a Dan Lambert at American Top Team, and you move into this facility, like some of the decisions are financial. I mean, I, maybe it looks disingenuous because they kind of harped on that family, like at those for so long and, and still do. And some, some people feel that, some people don't. Um, within the gym, I'm sure, but it's just the reality. Reality. I just don't think these these super gyms, very often, unless they're funded by serious like money, can last. It just doesn't. If, it does. It's not feasible. If I can push back for a moment, AKA, you can't name me another prominent heavyweight during Cain Velasquez's reign. You can't name me another prominent light heavyweight that they took in from another gym. During Daniel Cormier, you can't name me another middleweight other than Luke Rockhold. You can't name me another lightweight other than Khabib. You can't. So basically, they didn't. Oh, um, Will, did you send that to Eugene S. Robinson? He's oh just, yeah, I will. No, yeah, yeah, send it now. Okay. Because he's waiting to come on. So, uh, so that's why I say that is because they've been able to manage it without bringing in somebody to marginalize the fighter that they already had. Yeah, and I mean, and like, I, I think they, they're a very strong gym at the top, but they're not trying to be that super gym where you have 20 or 30 fighters like an ATT that are all, you know, in the rankings and in title contention. That's what's kind of worked for them. Yeah, I mean, because, I but know, they're, they're, like, their guys know um, you. I These guys have my back. They're not going to try to bring in somebody to supplant me. They're, they've got my back, and I think that's what they lost at Jackson's. But it seems like in Jackson's, like, uh, 
you don't really see i don't know if this is true or not but the vibe i got was you don't really see a lot of up-and-coming sort of talent coming from that gym besides the names that are already established now i don't know if it was just because of what you said tristan that the local mma Eugene, can you hear me? sort of scene in new mexico isn't really thriving okay i just told him to send it to you did you should have gotten it did you not can you check your email real quick um that i've heard you know you hear about all these fighters leaving jackson's gym i don't know if they're true or not based on what they said but it seems like they only focus on the stars they already have like a holly Holm or john jones or or maybe like a michelle watterson or something and everyone else like clay guida or diego sanchez or even Uh, some of these other guys. I mean, Mike Perry is there for us for a, for a moment, but then Cowboy left for, you know, various reasons, I guess. But it just seems like they're only focusing on their already established names that they already have, and not really building other up and coming fighters. I don't know. It doesn't pay, but yeah, I and, that's, just, and that's something I, I touched on a little. Like there was, a, there has yeah. been criticism of Greg Jackson in the past that he he's better and at regretting at, at at taking existing talents and kind of shaping them rather than building but i mean they have had young people i mean to the local talent you know a diego sanchez was did come up through the jackson the yeah. jackson brand you know he was in grappling tournaments when greg was just training out of a garage and just they were just traveling to places and grappling and king of the cage uh john dodson got recruited by chris luttrell out of a chuck e cheese uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh the other high school know, another high school orlando venata whose ufc career hasn't turned yeah. out like some had hoped when he fought Tony Ferguson, he was a guy that came here from the East Coast as a teenager and, and built his way up. And and you can also really, you know, like John Jones, he came with a few fights into his UFC career that he grew. So, they're, they're, but yeah, I mean, I touched on it when DJ asked what's going on. I don't, that you don't see like that new, that new way. It's more like getting, you know, people that are coming in and, you know, the existing stars and kind of writing them out. So we may see like, you know, when Holly calls it a career, or if John makes a change or decides to retire early, like they may have a shift. But for now, I think that's, seems like they're, they're good with that approach. Dude, Tristan, we're going to have to have you on again so I can talk about it. There you go. Tristan, we're going to have to have you on again so I could talk about NBA free agency. we got to hear about, what the hell is going to happen with the Rockets with James Harden? But as you can see, the legend has already joined us. So uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to talk too much longer. Then I don't want to take up too much time. No, uh, no, 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 no! <laughs> don't, don't let him do you like that. No, it's because next time I'm on, James Harden might be on the Nets, so we don't even know. I, the the only two people here that really care about basketball, although I'm starting to infect these two, uh, Will and Nick, is me and Tristan. We're the only ones that really love the NBA. So, uh, oh, how are you gonna? How are you gonna? How are you gonna minimize my NBA? Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Okay, I'm sorry. Will's a little bit of a fan too. He's he's a little bit of uh, a Renaissance man himself with golf and baseball and everything else. Uh, but Tristan, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to have you on again to talk about that because man, there's so much NBA talk. Is is I think we've got like 30 minutes of NBA talk at least, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I know we probably do it on the phone. So. <laughs> and, and Kyrie's trying to blow up the Nets already before it even started, right? Hey, 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 you you do know you do know which athlete from which sport gets the most amount number of groupies? Who is that? Basketball players. Oh yeah. Because you can sit right on the court, 
easy access, and you can see what's, you know, there's not like football player where the guy is so covered up, you don't see anything. Yeah, yeah. So, so check this out, Eugene. I, um, in under, I went to UCLA for my undergrad, and uh-huh. he tells me that you went to Stanford, so we have a little Pac-12. Pac-12 talk <laughs> yeah. going on there. Yeah. But, what, <laughs> but when I was in undergrad, uh, UCLA is in a really unique area in, in, uh-huh. in West Los Angeles. So it's basically right in the middle of Beverly Hills, Pacific Palisades, um, uh-huh. the sunset scene and all that stuff. So I remember being at uh, the Beverly Hills Hilton at the uh-huh. bar there in undergrad. And um, I was there with a buddy and then my buddy's girlfriend, not like significant other, but friend that was a girl. Uh-huh. She's a really good looking girl. Uh-huh. And she knew a lot of like athletes and stuff. And so I'm sitting next to Jerome Bettis yeah. and then and my buddy and then my buddy's my buddy's um, friend that's a girl. And she's really vibing on Derek Fisher. And uh, right. Yeah. We're going to have the and, Matt Barnes thing all over again, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> and Jerome Bettis is like tapping on me is like, who's that? And me being a SoCal kid, right, Laker fan, I'm like, you don't know who that is. That's Derek Fisher. He was like, who? And so it's a really good example there. Like, yeah. you can't see the football player yeah. under the yeah. mask, but you got to know who Derek yeah. Fisher is. No, they're fit. They're available on the court real easy. It's, you know, I was surprised. I thought it was going to be, I don't know what I, when somebody presented, I thought it would be like a, I don't know, a soccer player or something, because it's the most popular sport. So, you know, per, per, Per capita, say, you know, but no, no, basketball players. All right, so the voice you're hearing right there is none other than the legend. Uh, I'm going to try to go through this. The writer, fighter, swimmer, former bodybuilder, musician, journalist, father, BJJ Brown Belt. How are you at gardening? Are you any good at botany, Eugene? Oh, 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 are you kidding me? (laughs) Honest to God, that's exactly what I was doing right before you called. Eugene S. Robinson. spread I've got around here, yeah. Disco, disco dance instructor, you left that out as well. <laughs> oh, my God. The Denny Terrio of Brooklyn. All right. So, uh, Tristan, <laughs> Tristan, I want to thank very much uh, Tristan Critchfield, editor of Sherdog.com, for joining us. Tristan, my brother, uh, will you come back and talk NBA with me, please? Let's do it. Let's make a make another day all right brother you know, i want to see you, you know you, you, your man jeff is one of one of the people i love the most on this planet uh former sherwood jeff sherwood yeah i, I, I got to travel yeah. with jeff yeah when we were still traveling it was, it was great to yeah good guy i yeah. even had a beer with jeff one of the greatest moments in uh my my uh mma media uh, life was was uh, having a beer with him in phoenix uh, so it was awesome. But uh, Tristan, yeah, you'll come back so we can talk NBA and hopefully you'll have a Guinness in your hand, okay? All right. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure, guys. It See is a Tristan. pleasure. All right. Thanks. Tristan Critchfield of Sherdog.com, people. All right. And uh, the, the voice you heard earlier is none other than we went through the long list and still, I, I forgot, car guy, muscle car guy, Eugene yeah. S. Robinson of Ozzy.com, of BloodyElbow.com. Uh, and who's written a book, Fight Everything You Ever Wanted to <laughs> And that's a, a, an ode to Alexi Old. But uh, everything you ever want to know about ass-kicking without getting your ass kicked for ass But, 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 but we're afraid you get ass for ass-kicking. You mangled it. You absolutely mangled it. Alexi, feel free to skewer me on Twitter. 
Hey, is, is, is DJ your agent or something? Because he's run through your CV and bio like repeated, repeatedly to me. Every single phone call, he goes, I'm talking to my friend Eugene S. Robinson. Oh, and by the way, do you know no, it's like not X, Y, A, B, C, D, E, F, G? I mean, he's just <laughs> listing it off every hey, listen, single listen, time. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. This writer approaches me. And she says, you know, look, uh, I, I work for the San Francisco Bay Guardian. It's a big week. Like, every city has one. You know, the L.A. Weekly, right? So it's that type of thing. And she goes to a staff meeting and goes, I think we should do a cover story on this guy. And there was one hater in the meeting. Like, why, why, why is this guy, what has he done? And so she says, well, you know, he's got this book deal out with Harper Collins. Yeah, yeah, what has he done? Ah, well, he was in this movie with Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah, what has he done? Well, he's, he's won a bunch of journalism awards. Yeah, yeah, and eventually the guy was like, you know, <laughs> but, but he got me in the end because they took like, they had a four hour photo shoot and the guy said, hey, I want you to stand behind some plexiglass for this photo. It's a new thing I'm trying. I go, ah, no, no, I don't want to do that. And he's like, oh, come on, just one because I know the way media works. You got that. So he, he, finally the guy talks me into it. I go behind the plexiglass, one photo. I figured there's no way with just one photo is going to beat out all these other great photos. And that was the one that they put on the cover. And so the hater hater had his way. Hey, guy, got, nice. got you, man. Got you, Gosh, man. Nice. It's going to be glare. Yeah, you, no, you can't, you can't even see my, it could have been any, it could have been you. You couldn't even tell it was me. Yeah. You couldn't tell what the race I was, the height, the weight. They'd be like, no. yo, where's this bald spot, man? Exactly. Yeah. So I must have done something to this guy, and I, I just don't know what. So. His so girlfriend D- was probably looking at you. Go ahead. DJ's going to get pissed at me, but you brought it up, Eugene. You, said, you said Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I need... I need a Bill Cosby story before before we get started on uh, the real. I'll be glad to tell you one, and and um, it depends. Can I curse on the show? Because yes, yes, you can. Okay, all right. So uh, you know, so it was me. I played guard number three in Leonard Part Six, the worst movie of nineteen eighty seven. And so my, I had to wear a leotard and a tank, a muscle tank top. And as did all the other guys. So it was like me and like four of the bodybuilders, right? One of which was like the guy who was Mr. California at the time. So he was really massive. And, uh, you know, Cosby would come out of his trailer and do weird stuff all the time, you know? And I had the misfortune of sharing the, the makeup uh, chair with him at one point. And he was like, you know, it was weird. He's a weird guy. Like, I, I, I knew he was, I was telling people, he's not this Jell-O brand gelatin guy. He's a weird guy. And people were like, oh, you, how could you, you know, you just hating on him. And, uh, and then one day he came out and he said, like, I could tell he wanted to slum. Went to hang. And so he starts to say, hey, you know, you guys, I, I've been trying to lift weights. How do I get big like you? And we actually tried to answer him before we figured out, oh, he's just riffing. He's trying to work on a routine, right? And so we just shut up and let him do his thing. He goes, yeah, I've been lifting. I have not gotten any results. He goes, but you know how I got my nose this way? And we all have these like half smiles on our face because we're expecting, you know, the guy who did Noah, the guy who did Fat Albert, the Jello Brand Jelta, and the electric company is going to come out with something really funny. We go, no, man, how did you get your nose this way? He goes, by eating lots of pussy. <laughs> <laughs> No, no matter whether it was forced or not. <laughs> the most shocking thing about it was it wasn't even funny. I mean, what was funny about it was that he said it. But if anybody, if any of your friends said that, you'd be like, what's, the, what's, the, what's your fucking problem? It wasn't funny. And, I, and everybody in the group just kind of went, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. You got so, douche chills. So that should be a Bill Cosby story. So descriptive. But, but I'm sure he just chalked it up to locker room talk. 
Yeah. He, you know, he wasn't, you know, it was, it, I've only had two situations in which the person looked through me so effectively that I didn't, I was doubting my actual existence. Oh, wow. and, that, and that was one that you just, you know, we were just, he didn't, it, you know, we, we had at that point become audience and had no personhood for him. And the only other time it was when I got, I fell in the hands of some terrorist cell in Belgium, honest to God, you know, and I never had that sensation before where the guy, he was cool with me and then he heard me speak and he was like an American and he couldn't, at that point, it was like I got out of there with my life. You, know? so, you weren't and, joking, and that, DJ. He, Eugene just transfers dude, from a movie with dude, Bill Cosby. I'm telling you, man. like, we in we the, in the uh, grasp of a terrorist cell in Belgium. We haven't we haven't even we haven't even dug in, man. But oh, uh, so the voice. Yeah, so <laughs> let me let me just go around the room. So joining it, it's MMA BJJ in life. I'm DJ San Marco. Uh, the man to my right is Dr. Will Wu of Cal State Long Beach, professor of motor control and learning. Next to him is heavy metal bass player, sociologist, and nursing student. Nick Cazono, and of course the legend Eugene S. Robinson, Brooklyn's own Zone. Eugene S. Robinson. So, uh, and really, I could spend this time asking you about MMA, and probably at the end, I want to get your thoughts on what happened with Barata and about jujitsu professors and private lessons and things like that. But really, I want to dig into you and find out. So, um, tell, like, first of all, it fascinates me about growing up in Brooklyn. You had to get into Stuyvesant High School, which I assume is not the high school of Neil Diamond and Streisand, or is it the same high school? Um, I, 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 I didn't know they went. I knew Ben Gazzara went. I know Thelonious mm-hmm. Monk went. Um, so it could be. It's a hard school to get into. You have to test in. You have to, to test in, in right? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and, and they're fighting about the test right now. But there are three schools in, in New York like that. Bronx High School of Science and Brooklyn Tech. And it, the order was usually Stuyvesant first, Bronx High School second, Brooklyn Tech third. But now at this point, they're all pretty pretty even and equal. So so when did you realize that you were some like outstanding student that – and uh, was this something like your parents were pushing you toward that? Or how did this – come about that you ended up getting into a high school that I couldn't get into? I, yeah, I, you know, I never thought about it. I mean, because my parents actually had the foresight to say, look, I don't ever want my kid to be stigmatized for being smart, right? So I'd always gone to good schools. Like they said, they took me over to, to some PS92 for five seconds and we're like, uh, and they looked at it and I remember being there and I remember thinking it was like, it was like a weird factory. My grandfather used to work in a, in, a, in a factory, and it felt very much like that to me. And they were like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. So I always had the, the, the benefit of, you know, being at school with kids who were as smart as I was. So it was never any, you know, but then at the same time, you know, I lived in a, you know, I had lots of friends in the neighborhood. I lived in the neighborhood, and I had friends who were, <laughs> my mother would try to, like, you know, she goes, you know, you were out there talking to so-and-so, you know, you can't really call him stupid because, you know, you're smart. He's like, ah, yeah, yeah, he's not. Come on, stupid. He said, something stupid, I got to call him stupid, you know. So she was trying to get me to be socially sensitive, and that just wasn't happening for a Brooklyn kid in the 70s. So. And, Nick, what would you, you – you've been waiting for years to get on air with Eugene S. Robinson. This is your chance. <laughs> like he's starstruck. he's starstruck right. right now, Eugene. He's been waiting years. Well, I, I wish I wish I had talked to you like about five days ago because I interviewed that guy who's the CEO of uh, of Neuro, 
uh, about the, you know, the driverless uh, uh, Cars? robotic de- oh, the delivery vehicles. car. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I kept pushing about Skynet and, you know, he was laughing, but I mentioned it three or four times. And at the end, you know, I was like, come on, you, know, <laughs> come on, you can tell me, you know, so, but yeah, I wish I had actually talked to somebody who knew what they were talking about before I talked to them. So, I mean, I'm guessing motor controls has to do with robotics. I could be wrong. Oh, oh no, 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 yeah, Nick is the one. I'm not the starstruck one. I'm sorry, Eugene. No, 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 yeah, no, no, it's no, no. The other guy. Nick is the starstruck one. He's the fellow no, musician. I would have handed it over to Nick because I'm not. I don't want his. I don't want his dream to be ruined right now. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> They're both musicians. Remember, you and Eugene could get on stage and you guys could jam. Oh, None of the rest of us could do that. So, is it two bass players, a bass player and a guitar player? What, we, what is it? No, he's a bass player and you're a singer. Nick is a oh, bass just, player. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah no, I, I, his I band was. Be, I, 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 forever, I forever beat people like, you know, because your kids are in school with other parents. They go, oh, you play music? Oh, yeah. I do. I tell you, why don't you come over in the garage and oh, jam yeah, sometime? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, bro. I'm professional. <laughs> 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 That was 30 years ago. Yeah, so, uh, well, you know, if, if they paid, I mean, at this point, now, <laughs> 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 you know, and, and he paid, so Eugene got to yeah. show up in that garage and play his ass off. Nick, stupid. you better ask Eugene a question before I'm a, you punch your face. All right, all right, I'll, ask, face I'll ask one. I, I know, okay. I know, I did read your, your the book that you you wrote and everything, but were you thinking of maybe potentially writing a book about maybe like your life experiences or maybe a book about like your musical experiences or anything like that? Thank you, Nick. Your mind to well, I, I, we, we did a thin black book, uh, which was a companion to the Oxbow's uh, thin okay. black Duke. Um, and that was, that was a, and so then I just said, I want to do like a kind of uh, uh, a massive kind of, a career-based thing for Oxbow called uh, "Death Do Us Part," okay. but I had I, ha- I haven't gotten around to that because I want to mostly slave it to the next record, which is called "Love's Holiday." Mm-hmm. But the question came up like, okay, I did that novel uh, "Long So Screw," and it was released in France and as in French, uh, you know, in French, and then uh, the Italians are supposed to be releasing it in 2021 in Italian. Oh, and man. I start to think, well, that's kind of nice and cool, but I'm still like maybe total. I haven't made more than ten thousand dollars on that book so it would be nice to figure out how to write another novel and actually make money off it same with the fight book they gave me 20 grand up front but out of that i had to hire photo editors i had to pay for my travel to get to the interviews so in the end it was like yeah so yeah yeah yeah. so you know i don't know i'd like to you know i'm getting pretty close to the point where nobody will want me to work for them in a real job because you know (laughs) Because you don't want a 65-year-old bus driver or airline pilot, you know. So at some point, I'm like, ah, maybe I should stop working and write. But I still haven't figured out that magic key to actually get people to take your book seriously. Because nobody buys books. So book companies like to maintain this fiction of the upper hand. But the reality of it is when they tell you, oh, we don't have, you know, we're not budgets. So we're not, we're, we were, our schedule is full. They don't have, they can't, they, they're not selling any of these things. So yeah. unless you're a big name, like, uh, you know, like, 
like any of these people from the Trump administration who are writing books. Yeah, you're not going to sell. I mean, the fight book sold 9,876 copies. And it got banned in England because of the knife fighting section, because they're having a problem with knife violence there. And the words at the head of the CEO of the UK, Harper Collins, she said to me, she was, ah, it's too bad. Probably could have sold a million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much, you asshole. Oh, okay. that, that's my last and, and the funny thing is, those those two pages on knife fighting, I, I played a show in Brussels, and I, I went backstage, got a text from my agent, and he said, look, we need some, I want something a little more gritty. Do you have anything else? I go, yeah, there's a Vietnamese knife fighter guy who I didn't put in the book because I didn't think it fit. He goes, well, write it up for me. So backstage at the show, I wrote it up. I emailed it to him. He put it in the last second, and there were two inner pages. So I couldn't even, they couldn't even go down to the factory floor and cut them out to print it up that way. So it, it literally, it cost me like millions, right? So. Oh jeez! <laughs> I mean, the same. This is the same theme of that. It should have been Van Robinson instead of Van Halen. It's the same thing. Oh, you know? you, you, you've been paying attention. Yeah, yeah. my audition for Van Halen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Oh, is that re- that's real? Yes. <laughs> oh, you got to tell that story. Sorry, DJ's gonna kill me again because he doesn't. He doesn't go, go ahead, man. Like, get off, go ahead. Off no, track. go ahead. No, but you got to tell that. I was story. gonna ask him about Stanford, so you go ahead with this, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, well, well, you know, when, when David Lee Roth left, right, there was this big call, oh, we're auditioning singers. And uh, my guitar player at that time in Whipping Boy, my old hardcore band, was friends with um, this woman, Michelle, who was friends with David Lee Roth. And so we got, you know, we got the, this is before the internet even. So we got some like inner track. So I put together a demo tape and sent the demo tape and, you know, talking to people there and management and so on. And, uh, and then they called me and then they said, ah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, we're going to, we're going to pass on this, you know, and this is, you know, this is before I was conversing with the Hollywood lingo. And so I thought they were saying they were going to pass it on up the chain. You know, they were going to suffer for like for, for, for eight hours, man. I was just like, hi, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's going to be Diamond Dave. And then Ain't you, talking you know, about love. <laughs> Go ahead, come on, Dan. Would you have modified your look? <laughs> Would you have modified your look in any way? hundred nah, percent. Nah, Black you wig. You, you just you just have to you just have to you'd have to go totally different. So there was one bald guy before the guy who sang for the Midnight Sun. So I'd have just gone but I could I could have hung with the I mean I was like two sixty then too from you know, I could have hung with the jumps and the leaps and all that stuff. Oh yeah. But I just would have got, but then I was telling somebody, I go, Yeah man, they could gonna pass it on. And he goes, Whoa, whoa, did he say pass it on? Or take a pass. <laughs> <laughs> he explained it to me that I realized why they were not returning my calls at that time. I, 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 how, just, but the weird thing is, so they get, so they get, they get uh, um, who's it? Sammy Hagar, who I loved in Montrose, right? He was great in Montrose. Rock Candy, we used to cover that song. And, but they get him, and I thought he was completely inadequate as a follow-on to, to Dave. So. And I think one thing, Eugene, I feel pretty confident you would have worn the overalls without the T-shirt. You know, and look kind of look like Eddie. I think yep. that would have just like Sammy couldn't do that, man. He wasn't in, in shape enough to do that. Well, you know, the big shock, of course, when he dies, is that we now realize that Eddie Van Halen was Asian. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like yeah. what your mom's Malaysian, 
And we're, we're just finding this out now. Yeah. 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 I was, I was, I was, I was pretty pissed off about that because he said some stuff during his career that was borderline kind of racist, you know? And, and I was like, yeah, fuck that guy. That guy. And, and, and then, but he said that when he came over, he was so horribly uh, uh, bullied because of the accent because um, he was speak, he grew up speaking Dutch, and then you know because of the whole Asian thing, that he was completely kind of you know, and I just man, it's just kind of it's kind of shitty that I really wish that was something that people knew when you were alive. That would have been totally cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, more people could connect to him. Yeah, um, yeah. And speaking of being able to connect, uh, what was it like for you going out to Stanford as a freshman? coming from Brooklyn, was that like a totally different universe? Because like for me, the first time when I moved to California was the first time I ever been to California. From yep, the, you know, so before, before you answer that, Eugene, oh. can I tell the audience how incredibly difficult it is to get to get into Stanford? It is so difficult. So if, if you think that your kid is smart and they have an above 4.0, 4.5, whatever GPA, awesome SAT, SAT scores, that is normal at Stanford. Like they get into Stanford, they have to look at you and you not only have to be super intelligent in terms of numbers, but they need to look at your application and think, how is this person different from every other 17 or 18 year old in this application pool um, and how are they outstanding compared to everybody else? So yeah, it's basically well, a West Coast IV. Well, yeah, I, I wrote a piece recently about Gavin McInnes and sort of Proud Boys. Yeah, kind of came, came at me and they were like, oh, yeah, so Stafford, you probably had unfair advantage. And I go, well, that was one easy way. One, you don't get unfair advantage getting out. And two, there are real metrics associated with getting in. And so this one guy is harassing me. Go, hey, man. What was your SAT score? He goes, well, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. I go, no, 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 no. Five hundred. Yeah, we're talking about real numbers. You're talking about unfair advantage. You got it. Well, I, I just don't remember what it was. I said, well, I, I can tell you, mine was fourteen hundred. You know, and I was student government, and I was like this and that, and won awards. You know, uh, from Times Mirror Corporate. I, I can all this stuff is definitely connected to me but it has nothing to do with race so if you guys want to toot that horn but you got to remember I'm an old guy right so in 1980 um, what made Stanford popular was college football nobody in New York knew crap about Stanford I mean most of the people in my gym I used to work out in the gym in John Gotti's neighborhood these, you know, working class Irish and Italian guys they thought I was going to Connecticut man. they didn't know I was going to Stanford Stan, where the Stan, hell yeah, you talking yeah, about exactly. stand fitting right yeah, there in right. New Haven? Yeah, uh, all right. Yeah, you, you, you still be close. You'll be plenty close. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. I go, no, man, California. So, um, California. In my application, pretty much what I did was to be as honest about who I was and what I was interested in as humanly possible. And nobody, I had applied to four schools, got in, and I just, you know, I, that wasn't a big deal. I was walking through the hall at school, and some woman said hey, come here. <laughs> and I walked up and there was a calculus test I didn't want to take. And she goes, I'm giving a presentation on college. You should hear this one. And she was cute. So I said, cool. I get to miss a calculus test I'm not ready for. I get to go in and I can, you know, and she goes, her presentation was simple. We're half an hour from the beach. We're half an hour from San Francisco. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> uh, what were the yeah. other four schools, Eugene? Because that was a question I was actually going to ask. 
University of Michigan and uh, uh, University of Delaware and then uh, University of Miami because I figure if I don't get in those first three, I might as well have a good time. Um, <laughs> and I'd gone to school to be a, a biologist, but uh, you know, which is why at University of Delaware because they were going to give me a crap ton of money. But I really didn't want to go to University of Michigan because they animal housed me, <laughs> you know, which you know you could do that thing. The colleges would come to New York, and so. Like you could meet them, and I'm there, and they kept like an animal house where they keep leading them to the couch with the fat guy and the guy in the turban and the Jewish guy all have to sit on the couch. So I'm at this University of Michigan mixer, and nobody's talking to me. They're like just not, you know, these guys in blazers and blonde, blue-eyed guys in blazers not talking to me. And finally, someone wonders over themselves. So you're interested in the University of Michigan? I go, yeah, yeah. They said, what school do you go to now? I go, well, I'm, I'm from Stuyvesant. And then he's, oh, excuse me a second, goes, I see him whispering to some other guys, and then they start love bombing me, like, oh, have you heard? I was like, ah, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> too late. <laughs> too late. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck you guys. You know? so, yeah. That sounds like an easy kill, man. It really does. It really but I, yeah, it, it was it was a major shock. It was a major, it, you know, I was just, you know, I wasn't like, if you were 18 and from Encino, you were going to be really different from an 18-year-old who's coming from New York of the 70s, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a disco dance instructor in New York, New York, Xenon. And, you know, when I was relaxing, I'd be going over to Studio 54. And then when punk rock hit, of course, in, you know, CB's, Memphis, Kansas City, I had already done a lot of crazy stuff by the time I got into Stanford, so... You know, these days, a lot of people talk about universities in terms of what job are you going to get right afterwards. And they completely miss the human aspect about going to university is you're going to a university with people from that grew up differently from you. Right. We're all born in the U.S., but the U.S. has its own separate cultures within its different regions. Yeah. Um, I mean, even within those. And so they don't understand that. That's where you learn how to get to know people, how to get to know cultures, how to get to know socioeconomic backgrounds. Right. And how to get to know um, how people are different and how you can work together. That often, like these days, is just get there four years, get a job afterwards. Or some people yeah. are saying, I could be successful without college. Right. Yeah. And some people can. If you're if you're Bill Gates. Right. You're basically saying you're LeBron James. Um, if you're not going to if you're not going to college or something. Well, like that. you know, my oldest kid, she went to Berkeley and I was very excited when she went to Berkeley because one it's is if you're in state California, it's super cheap. So yeah. I'm super cheap, so it makes sense. <laughs> uh, but it's a really it's a it's a really good school as well. So I figured cool. Um but I never ever thought about the fact that socially it was completely the wrong school for her. Completely oh. the wrong school. So she didn't didn't like it at all. I mean she gets she her finish? degree. She gets her degree in about through at the end of December. Um, oh, nice! So she she didn't transfer. She stayed there. She stayed. She took some time out to, to have a kid. So I've got a grandson. And, okay. Uh, so that took you know she'll be twenty four in January. So she should have graduated three years ago. But you know, but now she's graduating. But it was not socially the right place for her. Okay. Also, yeah. also okay. we should mention that not only has Eugene raised, I think, two daughters. He has a baby, three. three daughters, because you have a brand new baby. That's four. That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's like yes, living the life he of is, 10 man. people. He is. 
He's like uh, the baby came into the show not long ago, right? Didn't, didn't yeah, show, yeah, yeah, he showed her on camera. So adorable, yeah. man. So congratulations to new dad of how many months now has she? Four months. She's four months. Four months. Old. Eugene oh, wow. S. Robinson, father. Um, yeah, that had and to be. You, go ahead. Yeah. And you know, I, I got to run in like 120 seconds because I got to do what uh, if okay. the shoes fit. <laughs> All right. Yeah, please, please go get it. We got uh, coming in next is uh, the surprise that Will's going to get is. Professor you got LeBron, I, I, Eugene. I, no, I wanted got to. LeBron. No, 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 I didn't. If I get LeBron, I will be as starstruck as Nick is. Um, I would have told. I would have. If I had known you guys were in the basketball, I told you my uh, Magic Johnson story. But uh, oh, oh, well, we're gonna have you back, Eugene. If you'll, if okay. you'll grace us, because right. we got more stuff to cover. But coming in, coming up next, we're gonna have on Professor Brent Littell, and Eugene should hear this. He has a black belt under Eddie Bravo in his system oh. at Tenth Planet. A black belt at Gracie Baja with the Gi. And then uh, Salo Hibero, he got a black belt as well. So uh, how 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 what, how big is he? He's your size. He's like yeah, he's I don't know, probably two hundred and twenty pounds, something like Ooh, that. Great how, how guy. Old is he? He's uh, probably he's younger than you. He's, he's probably forties, young forties. Yeah. He's a fin- He was one of my favorite people at Gracie Baja to roll with. Just brilliant. Do, brilliant. Do, do, you don't. I mean, <laughs> what it takes to do what that guy has done? It's ridiculous. <laughs> It's, yeah, yeah. He, came, he came in from Eddie Bravo's. He came in there. He said, give me a gi. He goes, I'm going to learn the gi. And before, okay, by the time I left there, the professor, who is a jiu-jitsu coach for uh, Dos Anjos, uh, would say, hey, uh, Professor Brent is going to be teaching in my stead, which at Gracie Baja headquarters, that's a pretty big deal. They got a lot of black belts. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so he'll be Well, well if, he, if he had trained at the Sorrell Academy, it would probably have taken 20 years to get a black belt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta train there. Yeah, yeah. For real. It, it, so. it's a pirate. It's a, it's a pirate ship from which I presently banned for things we can go into later. <laughs> Brown belt, Eugene S. Robinson. Thank you so much, Eugene. And yes, uh, come, promise you'll come back and talk to us because we got a lot more shit to talk about. Pack Beyond up. shadow of a oh, <laughs> right, Thank you, man. I'll Peace. see you later. Peace, <laughs> brother. Eugene. All right, we're gonna take a quick break on MMA, BJJ, and life. We'll be right back. Thank you for tuning in to MMA, BJJ, and Life. Will, Nick, and I really appreciate your support. Please take the time to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you want to reach us on Twitter, the show Twitter handle is at MMA underscore BJJ underscore and life. And you can reach us on email at MMA underscore BJJ underscore and life at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. to MMA BJJ in life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco, on the most epic, epic, amazing episode that we've done to date. I'm here with Dr. Will Wu of Cal State Long Beach, professor of motor control and learning, heavy metal bass player, sociology major, and nursing student, Nick Cazono. And I'm very pleased to, let's see how many black belts we're working on right now. 
uh, Professor Brent Littell of Eddie Bravo's uh, 10th Planet, of Gracie Baja, and of the Hibero system. How are you, Professor Brent? I'm doing, doing great, great, thanks. I'm working on my uh, Lean Six Sigma black belt as well. Oh but. my God, another sure. black belt! What but are we gonna sure. do? Are right. we gonna decorate the entire house in black belts? Yes. Come just on. Draped in them, like like, like Mr. T. I'm gonna yeah. wear them all. You should at the put same them around time. your neck right now. Like, why don't you like? You should like put them all around, like jewelry around your neck. Be like, hey guys, uh, how's it going, blue belts? Brent, do they all have Chinese characters on them? Uh, Korean. That's oh, uh, Korean. Get your pan Asian racism. Yeah, um, you're a racist, Will. <laughs> he's, you got a what problem with Asians, He's appropriating. Man. He's appropriating culture there or something. It like was that. a gift from a Korean person uh, with my name on it. Yeah, so. how do you like that, a, Will? You just he just got to put a tag on it that says this was a gift from a Korean person, and then that's his mm-hmm. home ass. That's Brent, right, Brent. I don't think we can keep Will from trying to keep the Koreans down. I mean, it's clear. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Dave mm-hmm. Chang, Dave Chang, where are you? Will's coming for you, buddy. Stone pop, beamy bop. I'm all over it, man. <laughs> all right, sorry, all right we're very happy to have him. And Steve is welcome to come in as well. If Steve would like to come in, oh. Steve Tiger Tan, I'm also Gracie Baja. Let me ask him. Let me ask him. He's more than, more than welcome if you'd like to be on. Uh, Brent, man. Um, so we want to catch up with you, and then we'll, we'll talk about the news of the day. And see, these are very subtle air quotes here. Okay. <laughs> What's been going on, Brent, since last I talked to you, man? Because it's been so long. Yeah. Uh, you may have heard of this COVID thing came out. Um, That's right. And... That's right. There's a virus. I forgot about that. Yeah, there's a virus. So mm-hmm. I owned uh, my jiu-jitsu gym, Hibero uh, Yorba Linda. And it had been open for uh, about a year and a half. And then COVID hit. So I shut... I closed business operations, and by about July, um, I wasn't seeing a real light at the end of the tunnel, and so I was kind of left with a choice of, am I going to carry this rent uh, with the opportunity in the future of maybe getting to uh, open again, or do I walk away from this? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I have another career. And it just didn't make sense for me to carry it. I also didn't want to stay open uh, during that time because I'm all windows. So anybody driving by would be able to see that we were open and report us. And, you know, at that time, there wasn't the same sentiments that a lot of the sheriff's departments have now. They they were finding people. Uh, Coyotera, for example, had to shut his academy down because he was getting fined. And and I was like, I'm not going to risk getting fined, stay open. So I sold the academy to uh, Andre Pontes, who's also a Hibera black belt. Um, and he is in possession of it now. And I haven't really been training. I'm training a little bit here and there. But uh, it's I don't want to risk my – I work in a medical facility, and I just can't risk the health and safety of the staff and the patients. Well, yeah, I mean um... – that the COVID just, I mean, there's so many different lives that it's torn apart down to business owners and somebody who just works in a restaurant. I remember going to a restaurant in Albuquerque that I've been going there since, uh, let's say the late nineties, 97, 98. And it's a Vietnamese restaurant. And I, the, the owner was working and she said, yeah, I had a, she's doing the tables. She's doing the cashier. 
and all that she said i had to let people go so somebody lost a job basically uh because of covid and these are people that depend on that type of income that's not the kind of job you do just for the fun of it like teaching yeah. yoga you know the stuff i do it's just you know so yeah i'm, I'm sorry to hear that and uh, i'm sure your students uh i think you know will and i agree that you're one of our very favorite black belts to train with ever um at any okay. academy well I, I want i want to push wanna back continue. a little bit i want to no back. no i don't <laughs> want to push back i want to i want to continue on with that because yeah. um, i don't i don't know if i ever said this to brett um um Brent's not the, at the academy anymore, and I haven't probably spoken to you since probably you left, like face to face or phone to phone or whatever it may be. But you know, um, us lower belts, we <laughs> evaluate and grade black belts. I mean, not that it means anything to higher belts, but right. to us, we have we have a saying where there are black belts, but then there are other black belts who are actually very helpful roll how black belts are supposed to roll with lower belts rather than just try to win every single time. And Brent was the black belt that we admired because you can roll with him and he can, he can roll with you in a way which it allows you to roll, right? Rather than his, his main goal is not to win or not to demonstrate that he's a black belt. Um, and then he always, is very, very, he was always very, very generous with post roles. Teaching. Yeah, teaching. Teaching. Um, and so, you know, us lower belts were super appreciative of that. And I don't know if higher belts like understand that we as lower belts were also evaluating black belts, whether, I mean, some people will say that dude shouldn't have a black belt because uh -huh. he's just a total prick, right? Or um, that dude shouldn't have a black belt because he does the same sweep on me and I'm either a white or blue belt. And it's like his go-to sweep. So like you can at least work on something else, you know, with a lower belt. And so, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for Brent for that reason. And he was a, a large a reason for, you know, my development in jujitsu was just because I thought he acted on the mats how a black belt, a black belt should act. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll just uh, kind of, some of this isn't just selflessness. I'm not uh, Mother Teresa on the mat. Um, a part of this is that the better I make everyone on the mat, the harder it gets for me. So then I get better rolls in as well. If I constantly beat you with the same thing, I'm not getting better. Uh, but if I teach you how to shut that down, yeah. then I have to go to something else and get better. So. It really, uh, you know, jujitsu is a, a, not an individual sport, as everyone that Puse says. It, it is a group sport, and the more you can raise up the quality of the room, the better you get. So I, I kind of always looked at it as an obligation to get better, uh, everyone else better, so that I could get better. Otherwise, yeah, I'll just hold on to my secrets and beat all you guys all the time. And then what, how, how good do I get? I'm the, yeah. Yeah. And if, if, if Brent, if you were to calculate like your 100 least favorite people to roll with, would I be in the top 10? Would you say a hundred least favorite? Well, usually. Okay. So the top, <laughs> the top least favorite people to roll with usually have an odor to them and you did not. Oh, okay. So, yeah. That's true. That's yeah, like, very good. With the, mean, the showering and washing my feet and yeah. Not yeah, eating he was clean yeah. and yeah. and your nails. You never like dug your nails into me. No, I mean least favorites usually are smelly bags of elbows. 
and you know like they just every move they do like they hit you accidentally and they're just sorry comes out every 12 seconds and yeah, I mean, yeah so as long as i'm on the mat exchanging technique which is what you were doing you will not be my least favorite okay person. all right i didn't break into the top 10 so i'm, I'm sad about that no. nick do you have anything for brent before we talk about the the debauchery and criminal behavior in albuquerque me or nick I have, I have no, more. Nick is Nick. that other guy. He's the oh, Japanese geez. guy. Okay. So I didn't you, you're, you're not the only, you know, come on. Uh, relax. Nick, are you still starstruck? <laughs> I'm not still starstruck. <laughs> he has. Oh, so Brian, Brian was, so you got your first black belt through the Eddie Bravo system? Yes. Okay. And what made you want to sort of transition into the, to the gi? Was this so, to, uh, yeah, um, I actually started in the gi, um, long before that in the late nineties. And then when Eddie opened, I had gotten up to blue belt in the gi and then Eddie opened in 2003, not too far from where I lived. So I transitioned there and got my purple, brown and black from him. Uh, but there was always just this underlying desire of mine to finish what I started with the gi. Um, and also, you know, most of the high tech movements were coming from the gi to no gi. And so I always felt like there was this lag time we know you guys were dealing with. I wanted to kind of be at the forefront of the research and the jujitsu, um, as well as a, a lot of the great fundamental instruct. Um, if you want access to the best instructors in the world, then you need to put on a gi. Uh, realistically, I mean, you have a couple. You know, you have your Eddie Bravos, your outliers. But yeah. overall, when you're looking at who the best instructors are in the world, the guys producing champions, they all wear the gi. So what am I going to Oh, let me wear the gi once and go to their class and then, you know, and then learn something that doesn't help me at all because it doesn't work. No, gi. I wanted to, to learn, all, take it all in. And uh, so the gi was kind of where that was at. And, you know, you're aging and, and no gi is kind of a young man's game. So, you know, my 20s were behind me. I got my no gi black belt at the end of my 20s so it's like okay i'm entering my 30s with a bunch of injuries from going way too hard in my life so yeah um so to, to that end uh, we were talking earlier about uh if bjj were to become an olympic sport so i just want to go around the room beginning with will and then we'll go nick and then we'll go brent um would this be a gi uh, if uh, BJJ were in the Olympics, or let's say we were going to call it submission grappling, would it be gi or no gi? Will. Before I give my answer, <laughs> push before, it back. <laughs> before I give my answer, yeah. I'm going to do a little review of the programming during COVID when there was a lack of programming going around because everything was shut down. And if we looked at the major sports networks and figured out what they were showing, obviously they aren't showing major sports like basketball, baseball, et cetera, because they couldn't. So you'd figure they're thirsting for something to put on, right? And they find something to put on and they're putting, putting on like cornhole. I think they might've put on tag um, and maybe drone racing. And then as a BJJ <laughs> practitioner, I'm saying to myself, you're telling me, they couldn't put on a, or like show a rerun of like the last champion uh, jujitsu championship, and I was just like, "What the heck is going on?" So I'll lead into my 
Can we get to the question think, now, Will? I think, I think that's a really sad state. That was Will's PSA. That was Will's PSA. That was Will's PSA. Okay. I think I was. Well, when right. I saw a tag, I was like, "Come on, man!" All right. Oh, jeez, enough with that. Okay. I think it's gonna be. It's gotta be Nogi because if you have no idea of what's, what's going, going on in the gi, it's probably gonna be boring as hell. More, yeah, more boring than judo because they have the throws. Nick. Yeah, that's a good point, Will. Because a lot try of, not to do a public uh, service announcement before answering. Well, the question. he kind of changed my mind. I was going to say like yeah, the gi, yeah. like no, maybe for a, an audience not familiar with grappling or who's never trained jujitsu, you see maybe one UFC fight when you see a a guy doing sort of worm guard or inverting and doing all this whack, which would be probably cool to see. But a lot of the gi matches have just it's like a battle of grips, so. It's just like sometimes the match could be five minutes of guys just kind of gripping, regripping, breaking, and I don't know if that'll appeal to a to a, a mass audience who's not familiar with the sport. So yeah, no gi would be I think more digestible. I think for people that have never seen any sort of submission grappling before. So yep, Professor Brad, yeah. I don't know how the Olympic mm-hmm. audience would like to see Braulio versus uh, Adolfo Vieira, uh, which was like right. about twenty minutes of worm guard. So, <laughs> well, yeah, um, I would I would argue for different reasons and entertainment value. One of the criteria that the Olympic Commission looks at is are uh, are lots of uh, countries represented in this sport? And in the gi, if you look at the podium, it's all Brazil with throw in, uh, you know, a couple Americans here or there every every couple of years. So that, I just think there's no way that you can bring that to the olympics because they would just be throwing golds at, at brazil at every weight class and um but if you look at abu dhabi which is probably the closest we have to a world champion like an official world champion olympic style thing is you do get people from other countries who win so for that reason taking entertainment value out of it um i think that that's closer not to mention you have a world leader um in sheik to to whom who wants this sport to grow and he would have the ear of the, the IOC Olympic committee. Yeah. More than anybody else. So I think on top of the entertainment factor, because of those things and other countries can transition pretty quickly, you get those um, like wrestlers from Kazakhstan or, you know, Dagestan or all the stands basically. Oh, like Khabib, I think would be very competitive in Abu Dhabi. I think. Yeah. Very exactly. competitive. So um, you transi- transition them in a couple years. So, you know, Khabib, though, right now is trying to get together a group to lobby the IOC to put MMA into uh, the Olympics. So uh, I would ask you, if they did that, Nick, um, how many champions do you think we would have that would be American? And how many do you think we would have that would be perhaps of Russian extraction or from the Caucasus, etc.? It's a good question. I mean, seeing the trajectory of how MMA sort of progressed right now, you would think in the future that the the sort of Dagestani, Russian, sort of Muslim sort of regions would would beat out, you know, most not most, but like a a good portion of the Americans. But based on while these up and coming fighters are doing really well, 
from that region. But I mean, I don't know. Well, right now, I mean, you'd look at it like just from the American standpoint at light heavyweight, you'd probably have John Jones. I think Stipe is a maybe. I think he's a maybe, but you could get, you could get like, uh, they're like a heavyweight wrestler from Dagestan. That would be a big problem for somebody like, like Stipe. Uh, yeah. you could have Demetrius or you could have Henry. So Henry could, could possibly yeah. take a flyweight belt or a 135 belt perhaps. Right. It's, um, it's an interesting thing because yeah. now you're essentially just John Jones cross promoting. We're cross promoting, uh, MMA now. Now you have a belt for guy versus UFC guy or one like, yeah, DJ from one. That's true. Yeah. Fighting, you could, you, know, you could uh, have Douglas Lima. Also. Yeah. That's really yeah, interesting. I, I never, I never even thought of that, man. Musasi would well, just dawn on me when you said that. Yeah, <laughs> that would be really interesting. Will, how does MMA look in uh, in MMA in an Olympic setting with the cage? I think Nick the other day alluded to the optics of having like a lock cage, and you've got you know some guy from like uh, you know Colorado Springs. Uh, with his family for, <laughs> hey, look at that, Johnny. They just locked the cage, and that guy's like putting his elbow onto the other guy's face. Uh, and the ref doesn't seem to the really... ground and knocking him out. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, during my time, during my time with uh, USA Track and Field (USOC), one of the big moves um, for the Olympics in general was to get a younger demographic. And so they, during my time with those organizations, they had added things like, uh, what did they add? Like they added snowboarding to the winter sports. Um, did they That's add right. surfing? Have they added surfing yet? To the I think they did. Yeah. yeah. You, okay. And then, and then recently, if um, you hadn't, if you hadn't heard, but they added break dancing. And oh, so, yeah. uh, you know, Brent brings up a good point. Can other countries be competitive? And then another kind of non-sporting variable to it is they they're trying to get the uh, younger audience to tune in to um to watch them and so i don't know where mma stands in terms of that demographic i guess it stands pretty well with the what is it the 18 to 35 year olds is that the all my money demographic um so i would say if that is a go i could see it being viable and you do have a lot of different countries represented if you look at cross organizations like Nick said. Well, Brent, Brent do you th- what are the chances that Gio and Richie would compete in breakdancing? Then they go over, they're competing in the grappling, maybe a double gold, right? double gold. For, G- for Gio and Richie <laughs> Martinez, right? Yeah, that that would be interesting. I mean, I don't I don't know how active they are in breakdancing. I know right I'm now. I'm kidding, of course, but I thought I just saw that connection when he said breakdancing. Yeah. I'm thinking of who do we know that fights? I'm like, oh, Gio and Richie, man. So anyway, um, so uh, that it's really it'll be really interesting to see what they come up with. But to me, to be honest, as much as I love MMA, I think the more consumable sport. And the speed of it, and the the optics, and you you know you have guys like Gary Tonin that have some very balletic moves when he's grappling. I mean, he's fascinating to watch him grapple. I would be very interested to see no gi uh, in an Olympic setting. I think that would be that would be really exciting. And wearing rash guards. Uh, first of all, believe it or not, uh, and I mentioned this earlier. I don't know who I was on the phone with. Uh, oh, Professor Carlos Diaz of uh, Gracie Academy here in um, 
in, in uh, Miramar Beach, um, my professor here, uh, we were speaking about it. A lot of people kind of get wigged out about the singlets and the male genitalia. There's, I've actually heard that, that that can be an issue. And I could see where if you had guys in board, you know, uh, uh, basically grappling shorts like we would wear for no gi and rash guards with Team USA, I could see the optics of that and the fact that you can have some very fast finishes like a Gordon Ryan dropping down on a heel hook and there's a finish in 10 seconds. Um, I think the optics of that are very good for an Olympic setting. I There was talk of um, college wrestling and high school wrestling going to a two-piece uniform, uh, board short and a rash guard. I don't know why or how that died. Um, but it, it appears to have died. Uh, uh, but I could swear that some of the professional wrestling matches, and by that I don't mean WWE, but the actual professional wrestling leagues, I think some of the guys do wear two-piece there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't personally, I don't care what they wear, but I, I could see where I have heard that that's an issue uh, for the live audiences that, uh, that uh, some people, the more conservative people don't like so um so uh but how do you think that do you think this i think the sport would play very well uh in an olympic setting you know from that from two standpoints well i um think that this is very dependent on who is judging right now as everyone complains the commissions are ruled by boxing and you have people who don't know anything about grappling anything uh about Muay Thai, leg kicks, elbows, judging the matches. And as such, it leans in a certain way. So if this would really be about execution to make it uh, exciting and, and really to see what they reward versus what they don't reward. Olympic boxing is not that exciting. Yeah, that's um, true. So I would hate to see them kind ne- of do neuter it. MMA. Neuter it, kind of. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. We're we're headgeared. It's for it's point fighting, that kind of thing. Right. And speaking of being neutered, uh, there is a professor in Albuquerque. Uh, what a transition! Sadly, yeah. he's from he's from uh, our our academy uh, from Gracie Baja in Albuquerque. He is one of the principals, along with Roberto uh, Tusa Alancar, that built that into. Uh, quite uh, actually they have more than one academy in albuquerque now and i believe one of them uh was baratas on the west side i believe he took over the west side or bought the west side or something like that so we're talking about arrested on uh, november 7th rafael barata de freitas um after a female client alleged uh an incident on a security camera in her living room uh, that uh, there was criminal sexual penetration, and he has been jailed. He's been jailed and charged with criminal sexual penetration. Um, you know, first of all, let me just get your initial thoughts on that, Brent, and then we'll go around the room from there, and then we'll kind of talk about if there's any mitigating uh, procedures that could be good put in place to dissuade somebody who's doing privates in a home from something like that happening. What are your thoughts, your initial thoughts on this? Well, the secondary was what I was going to talk about. I mean, sure. So you look, you look at Baja, they have, I don't know how many uh, affiliates now, maybe 600 worldwide. Mm, And assume, assume that each Academy has five to 10 instructors. 
you're dealing, you know, with, you know, 6,000 or so instructors. And, and when you look at statistics, just in uh, America alone, 17 uh, to 18 million women have stated that they've been uh, sexually assaulted. So that means there's a lot of offenders out there. And when you have an organization this big, um, some of this stuff is, regardless of what you put in place, some of this stuff is kind of bound to happen uh, due, due to statistics. Uh, would I ever go to a female's house to do a private lesson? Probably not. It, it puts you... I always made... I remember uh, having a private lesson with a teenage female when I was working in Hollywood. And I spoke to the front desk girl and I was like, under no circumstances do you leave during, <laughs> during this, during this, um, private because I'm so afraid, you know, of any sort of, uh, accusation of malfeasance. Now, what are my feelings on it? Um, it's on video. I'm sure there's, I don't know if there's a toxicology report, um, in regard to what he used on her or not. <laughs> But uh, looks really bad on his part. But, you know, I don't know that this I, – I, I saw online somebody posted, like, on that, one of the 10 Planet um, Facebook groups, like, you know, about Barata. And that's fine. You want to educate and, and get the word out on, on this kind of thing. But And then they wrote right under it, Gracie Baja. And I was like, what does that have to do – and I wrote, what does that have to do with anything? Like, sexual misconduct of an academy – owner has happened to every affiliate every large affiliation yeah there, if you google it there's quite a few you'll see a jiu-jitsu professor arrested and you'll see quite a few different locales and different years when somebody was arrested for this kind of behavior right so i, I was really it's kind of like uh gracie baja is the biggest player in the game and people love to knock them down a peg uh and i'm like dude this this happens that this just it's uh, unfortunate, but like to blame and to talk about what can you do. There are certain things, fingerprinting and all that, but that's only if someone's been caught. Well, uh, what I was thinking of preemptively is that when instruct, you know, for not just for Gracie Baja, for any academy, that if you're going to have instructors that are going to make themselves, I think they should sign this regardless because any constructor can avail themselves of a private lesson, whether it be at the academy or not at the academy. And I agree with you, like going to somebody's home would be extremely touchy, but um, okay, it's conduct unbecoming uh, that you're signing, that you're going to abide by these rules. And if there's any, if, 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 you've, if you uh, at all stray from within these two lines written out in this contract that we're going to have you sign, we can sue you. So that that actually uh, Gracie Baja in this case could sue Barata for this kind of behavior and conduct that is unbecoming of the academy. And again, it has nothing to do with the academy. It could be any academy. And we're obviously sensitive because we all train there. But it, we could be talking about ABC Jiu-Jitsu. Who's to say that Baja or Tusa doesn't already have that in place? I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm. I was trying to think of if I were an academy owner. Let's say I own DJ's Jiu Jitsu. Is what could I do to to let an instructor know we are going to be looking at you, and if you step out of line, because 
you I think we both know other other stories of other professors doing things like that kids class moms all this kind of thing is that um, is that if you step beyond these borders we can sue you in addition to the criminal system that we could take a civil action against you and you'll never teach jujitsu again or you won't, or you won't be able to afford a gi when we get done with you so hey, I don't know you you'd hear you think you'd hear from Gracie Baja what was it Albuquerque or wherever uh, he was an instructor at it that you would hear you you would think you would hear them sort of maybe pursue legal actions against this instructor but if you can if you can if you can yeah you can if they if they had that in place right you know if if what Brett said could be true if they did have those in place but I think someone reached out I don't know who it was some sort of MMA site reached out to I think people at that academy and they declined or maybe it was maybe the maybe it was the sort of um main Gracie Baja headquarters they reached out to and maybe they just didn't want to sort of touch on that like at that time or whatever but Will what's your thought do you think do you think there's anything that and see and I'm coming at this from the standpoint in the Air Force when we have an accident like we crash an airplane uh, when somebody gets killed doing our mission we have debriefs we have a, a safety investigation we look at what can we do differently to prevent this from happening in the future, if anything? Sometimes the answer is we've assumed a level of risk so high that that there's nothing we could do. So I'm just curious what you guys think about that. Yeah, so I, you know, in my day job, I'm a professor at a university. So I'm an instructor also. I have several students. And so while it's not jujitsu, I'm still in an instructor role. And... It's how you have your role as an instructor. You have to have, imagine this, right? Same situation. Um, a student of mine says, can you come over to my house? Because I need some help with um, how to teach people how to move. Right. To me, I go like, that is the most absurd request that could ever happen or that could ever be asked of me even though if I know the student very well. And like what Brent said, I mean, Brent was really smart about, you know, his private with that teenager because those are the same techniques or tactics or whatever, or strategies that I need, that I do on a daily basis with my office hours. If it's a female, well, regardless of who it is, not even if it's a female, it could be a male also, but my door is always open. The door is never closed whenever I'm in a meeting with someone. And that's on campus in my office, right? This is a different story of the instructor going to, to, the, to the student's house. And so when you look at that, um, and Gracie Baja doesn't necessarily have... Um, a program. No, like well, that, yeah. that's another issue. But Gracie Baja doesn't necessarily identify whether, or most organizations don't necessarily do this, is are they a good and responsible human being? Right. And that just says who you are as a human being, like those types of things. Um, and I would imagine, and Brent knows this very well, is Gracie Baja is very procedural with how they go about their business. They're very, I don't know, Brent, would you say they're probably one of the leading organizations in terms of making jujitsu a business? 
Absolutely. They are, they are the leading organization. I mean, someone might want to argue the, move my finger, the uh, Gracie Academy, but if you look at Gracie Academy, hasn't been able to really create an affiliate program of the same level. Gracie Baja, you know, a little known secret, but uh, owns IBJJF. Uh, what? So I know. It wouldn't even that, but. Um, you know, so they have the largest <laughs> competitions, largest competitions. They have everything. Yeah. Um, their franchise uh, agreement that I had to go through was about 360 pages. They've pared it down now. Uh, actually, there's some weird franchise law about how long uh, a franchise agreement is. But um, they're, you know, highly organized. You look at their, they, they do have a kind of a code of conduct and how to act. Uh, you guys don't get access to it, but on their, uh, that Gracie Baja website, I forget the name. The instructor. They're, yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a separate one for school owners and such, um, where it, it does go into this, uh, how to act with, uh, it goes from, you know, injuries, clients who call you and they've been injured to, to the, doesn't outright uh, rate, but it talks about a lot of these situations and yeah, and that, and that like them going that far, right? With it is is pretty consistent with how they go about their business, and I'm not I'm not absolving GB by any means, right? What I'm waiting for is for them as an organization to be responsible as an organization to say, all right, um, this happened. Um, and this is what we're doing to prevent it rather than try to sweep it under the rug and ignore it or come up with excuses that X, Y, Z. I mean, by the lies, by the lies, innocent until proven guilty, but nonetheless, you have damning evidence. Well, let's just, I just want to jump in there. Um, Gracie Ball does fingerprint and background check all of its owners. So as part of this with them, you're breaking up, Brent, a little bit. We're we're losing some of your commentary. Sorry. Okay. Uh, better. I got closer. I don't know if that helps. Um, it might. But did it help? Yeah. I, right now it's good. Okay. Um, Gracie Baja does do background checks on everyone who applies. So if uh, Tusa sold that academy to uh, Barada during the transition, there's a fee involved and all that. And they do a criminal background check on you. So, um, they they do have and that and I think that that's part of the discussion that also needs to be had is everyone likes to to say what should happen but a lot of this stuff may have already happened probably happened um, and you have a bad actor yes every corporation uh, works as hard as they can to get rid of bad actors but inevitably you know people uh you you can't really know truly know somebody until they grew up really like wow yeah i would similar 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 to a university setting right you have an organization that does due diligence right so as a as a university professor i have the same things that i have to go through this state i have trainings um initially i have continuing trainings but those types of situations don't eliminate it from academic academic uh, no. environments. It still happens, right, with happens uh, graduate students and professors. And it comes down to, like, the individual being being a bad apple. 
Um, and then I think one of the things that you have in jujitsu and um, Brent being the only black belt in this group probably has a different perspective. But what I see is that you put a black belt on someone and all of a sudden it's almost like with lower belts, they become all knowing about everything. Right. And then you, ha so you have that, there's a power dynamic there that's associated with it, which makes it even more dangerous for, for a bad apple, for a bad character. Hey, hey, can I jump in, Will? Brent made one of the funniest Facebook posts ever about this very subject. He said, he said, you're not an, or he, he made this post just because you have a black belt, you're not an Oracle. You shouldn't be giving life advice. <laughs> and I, I said, I was like in tears when I, when I yeah. texted Brent about that, I don't want to hear your thoughts on this, that, or the other thing. You're a black belt. Stay in your lane. Do you remember that, Brent? Yeah. That um, was a thing I, of beauty. That was a Van Gogh. Thank <laughs> you. I wholeheartedly agree with what Will says. Um, and, and one of my points, I think, there, too, is, like, I don't ask a black belt about, like, accounting issues. and But, you know, people are willing to listen. Once you become an expert, uh, people – endow you with a lot of uh, knowledge that you don't have and uh yeah it's, it's absolute it's absolutely true i'm also a marriage and family therapist and people uh imagine that you know i have a lot of uh, stage life advice that i'm you know we, we we do a process with people i'm not here i'm not dear abby with an answer to everything as well but they endow me with a lot of, of things and they want to imagine i'm an expert on everything as well and it's like dude uh you know, everyone has their specialization. Go to go to the specialists for each and everything. Um, but you know, to piggyback on this idea of expertise, there's also a certain level of responsibility that a, a black belt has in terms of who he chooses as a partner. Um, when you're, it's very uh, easy sometimes to use your black belt. Not in my case, because there's only so much uh, bad looks that a black belt will overcome. But what do you um, mean as a, as a partner? As a training partner? As a significant uh, other partner? <laughs> okay. There's a lot of uh, guys who can kind of use their rank with uh, the lower rank males. That level of expertise they have in jujitsu, it puts them on a pedestal. And it, there's some positive idealization that they can abuse on their end. Girl, realizing them. And, and it's like, dude, you know let's you're looking for something she she's looking for something different it's not always our duty to protect people from themselves but uh i've seen that definitely extend out as well and and from the yoga community i've had this happen on a number of times where um uh, i've done privates i've also sh uh, where one person shows up for class as a matter of fact it happened last night i had to drive to another city to go and sub for an owner that i really respect and one person showed up for class and it's a very attractive female and now you're like okay now i got to shut the door and i got to teach for an hour so you know i'm not doing any i first of all i'm not big on adjusting people anyway and i definitely and with covid i'm definitely not adjusting and i'm definitely 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 not adjusting given all that when you're in that situation so you have to go okay uh, i'm i'm a professional and this person, you know, looks up to me because I'm I'm a I'm a yoga teacher, and so I'm going to just give them my yoga knowledge, and that's it. And I've had to do that, I would say at least three times, you know, where that I've I've had that situation come up. So, 
uh, for uh, somebody like Barata just because you can. Uh, do you think he can get away with it? Uh, and supposedly in the story, uh, they say that there is, it is alleged that this is not the first complaint that's been made against him by other students uh, at the academy. Have, oh, the person who accused him said that she has heard from other students that he approached them in a similar, like a very flirtatious way. And that's just something, if you're a jiu-jitsu coach uh, or a professor out there, you just absolutely cannot do. Um, you just cannot do it. Yeah, I had a talk with uh, my my partner. It was kind of a joke talk, but like, you know, I'm married, so it didn't make a difference for me. But he was single, I think, at the time when we opened, and I was like, no having sex with the students or children. All right? Just, I mean, you know, we're, it was a given. We both understood he's a very ethical dude, but I have uh, – it's usually the assistant instructors, to be honest, do that because they don't have a financial stake in the place. So they don't worry about laying waste socially to the place. But, uh, it was, you know, it's, it, don't use the academy, especially if you own it as a dating pool. It's, it's a horrible idea. And it goes terribly wrong, splits academies in half as well. And when, when the partners break up and then people are having to choose a side and, they see an ugly side of their professor or something. It's like, yeah, there's too many uh, dating apps out there to get mired down for women. <laughs> I can't, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there's lots of places to find women. Don't use your position or your authority to do it. It's going to end up badly and it could end up with you going to jail um, yeah. as somebody's about to find out. Um, so that's about it. We're going to wrap it up. So I want to go around the room. The doctor is in. Uh, Will, do you have any thoughts about MMA this week, BJJ, life, or just how awesome of a person that you think I am? Um, good to see Brent again. Good to chat with him. Well, there's that. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, uh, you're... I know you're taking precautions towards training and stuff like that, but since you're a health service provider, you're probably number one on the list to get a vaccine. So hopefully uh, <laughs> you'll get you'll get the vaccine and train soon. I was hoping being an educator in front of students and all that I'd be on, on higher on the list, but um, it looks like I'm waiting until like the middle of the year. Um, best example, but um, it's good to see Brent. It was good to meet, uh, meet Tristan and Eugene. Um, sad times that BJJ community has to deal with this because we're talking about trying to grow it into Olympic sport and things like that. And then you got to deal with this, this crapola, right. That happens. Um, but yeah, I just wrap it up. It's good to see Brent again. Good to chat. Good to, good to chat with him. Definitely, definitely miss his, his, um, his black belt teachings on the mat. Nick's Kazono. Uh, very happy to see uh, Tony Ferguson and Oliveira. Who is it this weekend? It is um, yeah, uh, Brandon Moreno versus um, uh, Davison Figueiredo, the champion. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later, excited. Yeah, man. I don't know. I don't. I don't like. I don't like to wait cuts in the span of three weeks. Uh, Professor Brent Littell, any parting shots? Uh, how much time you got? Uh, 
he should have his own podcast. He's wasting his talent on mine. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. There's, there's so much money in podcasting. Really. Oh, should, Joe Rogan see. just made $100 million. Your boy. And you should see how much DJ is paying Nick and I for this. It's it's we couldn't say no. I want to say that I'm doing matching 401k contributions as long as you go five percent, Brent. I I know uh, Joe mentioned on the podcast, but uh, I don't know. Uh, but um, it would have been great had my academy still been open for me to be able to put that on my website. Hell but, yeah! Uh, so um, I. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, I want to mention a couple of things. I do miss rolling with you guys. Um, I am first on the list for the vaccine, so I'm really excited uh, to get that and get back out into the world. I want to uh, kind of divorce Gracie Baja and Barata with, with this conversation. And what I mean by that is, is we kept talking using Gracie Baja, but until like proven otherwise that the Academy knew all that it's like you know everyone wants to jump on what is Baja doing what is Baja doing um no it's what is Barada doing Barada is an adult making his own decisions um doing terrible things unless we see that Baja was like basically the uh Catholic Church in regards to the scandals that went on covering I don't think they should even have a a, a role in people talking about them um they do Especially because a lot of people aren't coming from a place where they even understand the systems they, that Baja does put in place already to, to prevent this. And, and how rare this really is with the, the sheer number, the sheer volume of uh, academies that they have. Num- you know, I know this is the number of reported versus unreported and all that. You know, we don't applaud them enough at the same time for the policing they do do, the bad actors they may have gotten rid of. We don't see that part of it. Um, jump on. So Barada's a, ter- a terrible human being for what he did. Um, Barada should know better. I think if you have Tusa, and I really like Tusa, and Tusa's a, a, an awesome guy, super nice guy, vicious on the mats. He's an amazing guy. Um, you know, if Tusa was like, yeah, I have this serial rapist on my hands, do you think it would have been in his interest to keep that guy around? I, I want to break in here. I want to make this clear. The na- I, I, I think that Gracie Baja bears zero responsibility for this incident. They are only mentioned just because he is so closely associated with the Academy. So I want to say it again. I believe Gracie Baja bears zero responsibility for what Barata did. Barata did that on his own, and he knows damn well that Marcio and Marco and any of the instructor cadre over there probably would not even go to a person's house to do any training, not the less be feeding them alcohol and everything else. So I, I don't hold the Academy responsible. This is Barata's doing. Correct. And I, I think we I think we talk about it in connection, Brent. And the reason why I bring it up in connection is because like you say, in on social media, etc., people just look at Crazy Baja as this you know, huge organization, whatever, whatever their negative views are. But we have, we have detailed perspective about how the organization is run based on your experience, right, with trying to open up your academy and my personal talks with, with Felipe de la Monica, right, Pew Pew, those sorts of things about um, how GB has become the way it is. So I think it's important that we talk about them 
like together in a way to educate that this is a really professional organization that's leading the BJJ community and making uh, jujitsu academies places where people can make their living, right? Open up a business and say, or for kids to say, and there are kids like this at GBHQ that grow up in HQ that say, my career choice is to become a GB instructor, right? And so they're leading the way in that. And for people just to blatantly say whatever they want about GB and not know those details, I think it's important that we highlight the professional nature in which they're building the organization. I will uh, both talk about the professional and unprofessional. I know a case, and I'm not going to mention names, of a high up at Baja who got word that there was a academy, like kind of co-owner, runner who was uh, engaging in relationships with the mothers and who went to the academy, closed the door, beat him up. Um, over oh, that. did you? Did you were talking about this, uh, something oh, along these lines earlier? But this was a couple years, maybe like, yeah. I don't know, eight years ago. Like, no, I told you to knock that shit off. You, oh, are you allowed to cuss on this? Sorry. Yeah, um, yeah, you can. Okay, I told you to knock that shit off. You didn't knock that shit off. Now you're fucking responsible to me. Um, so, I mean, they, I know that's going to, like, that's a long time ago. They professionalized since then, but yeah. they stuff uh, pretty seriously. And um, so that's my point on that. Um, COVID, I want to talk about. I applaud every academy owner who's been able to make it through this. I applaud um philippe um he's got a family to take care of and he's been able to navigate this and group good for him and good for all the academy owners i, I don't want to see covid and the careers of so many people who've built uh great things i have another you know i had something to, to fall back on not even to fall back but like my main bread and butter and i'm very successful there and i'm very thankful for that but for a lot of these guys it's it's life and death and uh feeding their families and not feeding them i just you know i and end soon everyone gets their uh vaccinations and and we can open things up again and these guys who've made it through this can can thrive again and what what amazing you know academy owners they are to, to be able to get through this and gracie baja is in there's three of us here that gracie baja is imbued in all three of us we will always no matter what academy we're always going to be part of the gb family i still feel like i am i'm sure you do and obviously will is still active there and nick just like nick and i came from helson gracie cleveland we talked extensively about that academy on this show uh and we're always going to be part of that family i i could call professor i could call professor mark tonight uh and he loves talking to me so um you know we're always yeah. going to be part of part of those families, so uh, that doesn't that doesn't go away. And I'm very proud to have been part of GB. People do say stuff here. You know they'll make fun of me a little bit uh, when somebody comes in with a GB, but um, it's just the way of things. When you move around, you go to different. You can't always be with one academy when that academy does not exist where you move. And those of you, if you're blessed enough to live in the same place for you know, half of your life, like some of you guys, you know, some guys out there, hey, you know, you're going to be able to stay at your academy. But if you start moving, you're going to make a new family. Doesn't mean you lose your old family, you know. So I could I could go to GB and train tomorrow, and I'm sure they would welcome me there. So uh, so thank you very much, Brent, for coming on with us. We did pretty good. We did two hours. We had, I want to thank uh, uh, Tristan Critchfield, editor-in-chief of SureDog.com, formerly of the Albuquerque Journal, 
one of my favorite people. Next time he'll come on talk more NBA free agency with us. Maybe uh, Brent can talk about LeBron and the Lakers championship. Uh, I know nothing. I know, I'm just kidding. Kind of an expert on everything. That's right. Um, and uh, Eugene S. Robinson, uh, the legendary writer, fighter, and we really don't have enough time to go through all his accolades, uh, whether it comes in jiu-jitsu, academia, journalism, music, uh, you'll just run out of time. So uh, I really appreciate it, though, guys. So for uh, Dr. Will Wu, for Nick Cazono, and for Brent Littell, this is DJ San Marco saying peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. Uncle Rob.